The text today is 1 Corinthians 11, 17 through 33. It says, But in the following instructions I do not commend you, because when you come together it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe in part, for there must be factions among you, in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. If I receive from the Lord what I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself, then and then so eat the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks the cup without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why so many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. This is the word of the Lord. I'll pray. Dearly Father, Lord, just uh, be with us in this time. Open our hearts just to understand your word and just to, just to see you in this word. Um, lead Brad as he just exhorts us and calls us to just to see you rightly. Um, so I just pray that you're with this time and that we can just uh, just grow with you and grow in our faith. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Good morning, church. <clears throat> we are going to change up the order a little bit this morning. If you haven't noticed already, uh, usually we do communion before uh, the sermon. Today we're going to do it after because... What we're going to talk about and focus on today is when we come together and eat, uh, when, we, when we do communion, what does it mean, why do we do it, how should we do it, those things, and then we'll close our service today uh, with, with uh, communion um, as we do that. Um, when we come together and eat, and um, I don't just mean potlucks there, um, which by the way is my favorite church activity, I think. Um, and I'm still working on some things. Um, I'm from, if you didn't know, I'm from Texas. Um, and uh, potlucks, there's no sign-up sheets with that or anything. It's just potluck. Um, I'm working on getting us there. Um, I haven't been successful yet. I think it's an issue of just trusting the sovereignty of God. It's going to work out, right? Um, I'm kidding. Totally kidding. Um, but the early church met on a regular basis, and they had what was called love feast. Agape meals, our love feast, where they would share a meal together and kind of that was usually capped off and headlined with communion. They did it on a, on a regular basis. And that's a little bit important to know because we'll see 
um, in just a little bit uh, some references that, that will make more sense in that uh, context. The church is given two ordinances in Scripture in the New Testament. Two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Um, there's a lot of things we do, we're called to do, but there's really two ordinances that, that, that we keep there, baptism and communion. Um, they're both are commanded by Christ, both focus on the work of Christ, and both of them proclaim the gospel. Now, when we do communion, the Lord's Supper, whatever you want to call it, some call it the Eucharist, uh, it, it, it's called um, different things there, but when we do that, we need to know that that's not just a tag-on to our services. Communion is central to the worship of the New Testament church. If we're a New Testament church, then central in our worship is communion, is the Lord's Supper. Central. It's not, it's never been a tag on to regular worship. And there, there's a quote, I'm, I'm going to read it now, but I put it at the bottom of your outline because I, it's one I want you to be able to take with you. It's a really good one. It's Charles Spurgeon. He says, I think the moments we are nearest to heaven are those we spend at the Lord's table. I think the moments we're nearest to heaven are those we spend at the Lord's table. This isn't, if, if you're not careful, it becomes, yeah, that's just, it's that time, you know. It's, you know, third Sunday of the month. We're going to do communion, right? And so we just do it and you go on. It's not a tag on. It's central to our worship. It's not just a routine. It's a proclamation of the Gospels. We're going to see a little bit more. Um, in fact, there are some indications that in the early church, this was a regular part of almost all their gatherings, at least on a weekly basis. Um, so it's not just a ritual. And also, too, when we do, we do communion, understand there's, there's, there's instruction here. There's meat here. There's, there's teaching here as well. I want to read one more quote by Spurgeon. He says, Where, beloved, can we find richer instruction than the table of our Lord? He who understands the mystery of incarnation and of substitution is the master of scriptural theology. There is more teaching in the Savior's body and in the Savior's blood than in all the world besides. There's meat here. There's teaching. There's meaning. And we do it on a regular basis. And not very often do we stop back and say, okay, why do we do this? I mean, we, we allude to it in, in, the, in the passage, but today we're, we're, we're going to dedicate this whole time to why and how um, the, the Lord's Supper, communion. We're going to focus on that this morning. Why and how do we do communion? Start off with this, why do we do communion? Why, why do we do it? It may seem strange to some. You're taking a little cracker and saying, this is my body, which is for you. And the little cup, and you drink it and say, this is the blood of the new covenant. What does that mean? It may sound strange, but there's at least three different reasons that we see in Scripture um, to do it. Uh, number one is to, to and, and I think you can allude a lot more, but we're just going to focus on these three. One is to celebrate our deliverance, to celebrate our deliverance. In our passage today, um, we're going to go a little bit of out, out of order because we're doing it kind of categorically here. But if you look at verse 23 and following, Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when He was betrayed, He took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is My body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. In the same way, also He took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in My blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of Me. What am I saying? He says, this is my body, 
This is my body which is for you. This is my body which is for you. Or sometimes I say broken for you. So, so do it. My question is, how is it for you? How is the body of Christ for you? And it's, it, it, it's this. His, his body was sacrificed in your place. We call it substitution. He gave His life. He gave His body in our place. It was sacrificed for us um, in our place. Ephesians 2, 13 and 14 sums it up pretty well. It says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Listen to this. You were once far off, but you've been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility. It talks about our separation. It talks about how we were cut off from God. There was a dividing wall of hostility, which is our sin, and He broke that down through the sacrifice of Himself. It says through His flesh, through His body. This is my body, which is for you. How are we reconciled to God? How are we brought near? How are we taken from being strangers and aliens to being friends? How is our sin forgiven and how is our debt paid? It is because He gave His life. He gave His body. This is my body which is for you. And He also goes on to say, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. The new covenant. What is, what is the new covenant? And what is that all about? Well, we know the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the, the covenant of the law, which was never adequate to save. But in Hebrews, Hebrews 9, 11 and 12, it says, But when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come, it's talking about the new covenant, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. We're talking about the Old Testament tabernacle. That's what they refer to as the tent. But that's not how He came. He entered once for all into the holy places and not by the means of blood or goats or calves, but by the means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. We come by the blood of Christ. That's the only way we come. We read about we've been in the in the previous passage we read we were brought near by the blood of Christ. Here it says he he you know they, they did all those sacrifices, thousands and thousands of animals slaughtered and their blood spilled. And, and Hebrews tells us none of that was ever enough. But Christ came and he shed his own blood. And he has brought us near. He has brought us the good things that have come, the new covenant in his blood. It's to celebrate our deliverance. You say, why, why a meal? Why a meal? Well, where did, where did communion come from? How did they start that? Well, what were they celebrating that night in the upper room when you had the first communion? They were celebrating the Passover, right? They had come together. It was a night before Jesus was betrayed. They come together. They're celebrating the Passover. Um, a communion celebrates the fulfillment of the Passover Exodus 11 and 12 is where we hear that described. And if you don't remember what the Passover was all about, it's a, it's a feast commemorating the deliverance of God's people out of slavery in Egypt. Remember, Joseph uh, had, uh, had basically uh, was in Egypt after he was sold into slavery by his brothers himself, right? He rose to a great position there. Egypt was doing good while there was a famine all around. And the people of God were actually saved by being able to come into Egypt. 
Fast forward 400 years later, the people of God are no longer safe in Egypt. They're now slaves and in bondage. And they're in a terrible situation. And so God sends Moses to deliver his people from Pharaoh out of that slavery, out of bondage uh, there in Egypt. And there was a series of plagues because Pharaoh wasn't going to just say, okay, you guys can go now. So there was a series of plagues. And every time there was a little bit of waffling, but the answer was no. The answer was no. Finally, there's the 10th plague um, of the killing of all the firstborn, uh, firstborn in Egypt. But God had instructed his people. Those that were the people of God. They were instructed to mark the doorpost of their homes with the blood of a lamb. Take the blood of a lamb. They were to take a lamb and here's how it is, without blemish, that's important. They were to slaughter it, and they were to eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs and place the blood, some of the blood, over the doorposts and the lentils of their home. And those who did not have the blood of the lamb on the doorpost of their home, the, the firstborn was, was struck dead by God. And so it was, it was a massive thing across Across Egypt, as every household almost, except for the people of God, was touched by death. Touched by death. At the conclusion of this plague, Pharaoh let God's people go. And in Exodus chapter 12, 24 through 27, they were commanded to keep the Passover, keep the Passover always, this Passover meal, as a remembrance of God's deliverance. So that you don't forget what God has done. Keep the Passover meal as, a, as, as just a, a remembrance that God has delivered you. And so they, they did. They, there were times where that waned um, in, in, in the Hebrew society, but it was always brought back. They kept the Passover as God commanded, as a testimony of deliverance. You say, well, why then the Lord's Supper? Why then the Lord's Supper? Why communion? Why, why do we do it today? Because when Jesus gathered with his disciples in the upper room, they did it to celebrate the Passover. But something incredible happened. By the way, it's recorded in Matthew, it's recorded in Mark, it's recorded in Luke. When they got together to celebrate the Passover meal together, Jesus said, let me tell you what this is really all about. This is absolutely about celebrating a deliverance. But this is about a much greater deliverance. So when you come together and eat, when you celebrate the Passover, you're celebrating your deliverance from sin and judgment. You're celebrating the deliverance that I am bringing to you. Jesus did not do away with the Passover, but he revealed its most profound meaning and fulfillment. The Old Testament Passover was a foreshadowing of what God was going to do, not the ultimate fulfillment of it. It's not just bondage to a, or slavery to an Egyptian Pharaoh. That had temporal consequences, right? That, that, was, that was a miserable life, but that's all it was. This celebration of the Passover is a celebration of our deliverance from, from sin and death and judgment. It's a celebration of deliverance from hell, if you want to go to the extreme there. It is ultimate Freedom. It is celebration from eternal judgment, not just temporal bondage. Just as God executed the judgment of death on Egypt because of their sin, He's going to execute an ultimate and eternal judgment on all of mankind because of our sin. 
There is, and the wages of sin is death, we read in the New Testament. And by the way, that's not, that is not good news. The problem is not that we can look out there and say, well, yeah, there's a lot of bad people that deserve that. The problem is we deserve that. The problem is we are in that category. The wages of sin is death and we are sinners. The right time Christ died for the ungodly. We are the ungodly. We were enemies of God. We were cut off. We were separated. We were objects of the judgment and wrath of God. And that's who we are and that's what we deserve until Christ stepped in. Until He came. You and ourselves are imperfect. Apart from Christ, every part of us is entirely corrupt. I don't think we always get that. What it means, the, the depravity of man. Apart from Christ, there is nothing good in us. The only thing good in me is Jesus. And we must stand before God in judgment. That's bad. But what if I take a lamb and I slaughter it and I put the blood of that lamb over the doorpost of my house? Is that going to do it? No, it won't. Then why are we here? What's this Lord's Supper all about? It's about this. It's about the fact that God provided a lamb. And it was truly a lamb without spot and without blemish. The lamb was the Son of God. As John the Baptist said in John chapter 1, when Jesus, when he, he sees Jesus there, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. God provided a lamb without spot or blemish. And he was sacrificed and his blood was shed. And the, 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 he bore the full measure of God's wrath for sin. And so we celebrate that deliverance when we celebrate communion. The new covenant, Lord's Supper, is the remembrance of God's divine deliverance from His eternal judgment because of our sin. God provided the Lamb. So this morning, this morning, I ask the question, do you remember the Gospel? What does He say to do this? This, this is what I've done. So as often as you eat, do it what? Do it in remembrance of me. Do you remember? Do you remember the Gospel? In remembrance of me, our minds are full of so many different things. And ultimately, guys, can we just be honest? They're, they're full of things that really don't matter very much, but they dominate our minds and our attention. As we take communion this morning, I hope we can fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. And I hope we understand too that, that, that this little cracker and this grape juice themselves are not the point. We look through them. They're not, they're not what it's all about. We look through them to see the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. Spurgeon describes them as spectacles that we look through to see the incredible work of Christ in the gospel. Do you remember the gospel? Do it this morning to remember the gospel. And also do it to proclaim the gospel. That's verse 26. It says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. If you're not a believer here this morning, then I encourage you just to watch. If you're not a believer, just watch. That's okay. That's good. It's really what needs to happen there. Because there's a message that's proclaimed when we do communion, the Lord's Supper. Watch and hear and see the Gospel proclaimed. 
What's the picture of, of once being separated from God, but now we're partakers, we're partakers of Him through the cross. See the gospel and believe the gospel. How do we, that's why, how should we do communion? This passage gives a whole lot of attention to how we should do communion. And honestly, most of it's on the negative side. There's a whole lot of emphasis here on how not to do communion. And so we can see that and say, okay, that also then tells us then we should do the opposite of that. How, how should we do communion? How do we do it? Does it matter how we do it? Apparently it does. And I say apparently it does because our passage this morning is largely a rebuke of the Corinthian Christians for doing it the wrong way. So apparently it does matter how we do it. We can get it, we can get it wrong. I will say a couple, a couple preliminary things here. First, don't focus on what is not prescript, uh, specifically prescribed in the New Testament. You can get off in details and debate, should we do this, should we do that? Don't focus on what's not specifically prescribed in the New Testament. Some things like how often. Well, how often are we supposed to do it? Every church did it. Seemed maybe they did it every week. Maybe they did. They, maybe they didn't always. We don't, we don't really know, right? We don't know. Is it once a, once a year, once a quarter, once a month, once a week, once a day? What is the right amount of time to do it? Well, the Bible doesn't exactly tell us the answer to that. It says, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, as often as you do it. It's not commanded to do it on a, on a certain timetable, but what is clear, its indications is that it was a, a regular part of the worship of the early church. It's to be a regular part of our worship. So we do it every month here. I grew up doing it once a quarter. In a, a previous church where I was pastor, we did it once a quarter, but we moved to once a month because I felt like it needed to be more often than, than, than that. But don't hang up on that because it's not specifically prescribed. It's just a regular part of the worship of the church. What kind of bread are we supposed to use? Are we supposed to use these little bitty crackers that we, that we use right now but as unleavened crackers, unleavened bread? Um, or should we be breaking a big loaf open, right? Uh, what, what are we supposed to use? Well, I think the unleavened part is, is pretty important. So we'll stay with that. But again, it isn't specified. The Passover was unleavened, right? Unleavened bread. Why? It had no yeast. The idea is unleavened un, without yeast, right? It had no yeast, so it didn't rise. And the idea was that in the Exodus, they had to leave in haste, right? They didn't have time. It was kind of a remembering how they had to just pick up and leave and go. They had to leave in haste, and so the bread was unleavened. It's a remembrance in that regard. Also, uh, leaven, you've heard me say it before, it, our, our yeast is used in the New Testament to represent sin. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Remember that? Talking about sin that's just allowed to, just to continue throughout the body. It, it contaminates all. And so unleavened cracker is a good representation of the sinless Savior. But again, it's, you say, well, we did it different. We're like, okay, great. That's, that's fine. That's not specifically the point, right? So don't hang up on that. What about, do we, do, do we drink wine or do we drink grape juice when we do it? Right? Wine or, or grape juice? Again, it isn't specifically addressed. In fact, I'll, I'll tell you kind of how it's laid out in the New Testament. The, the Greek word for wine is oinos, oinos, and it's used numerous times throughout the New Testament. 
But in the Lord's Supper passages in and Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which is the gospel times it's recorded, it refers to it as the fruit of the vine, which literally just means the fruit of the vine. It's a, it's a phrase. It's not even a specific word. It's a phrase. It's the fruit of the vine. So th- does it matter which one we use? No, that's not the point. Uh, we use grape juice uh, for some various reasons. That's fine. Don't hang up with it. it it's, not, it's not the point. It's the fruit of the vine is what we see in Scripture. So don't focus on what's not specifically prescribed in the New Testament. But what do we see in the New Testament? Now, let's get into some ways where the Scripture tells us right off, we do it, we can do this wrong. Okay? How do, we, how do we not do it? How can we get it wrong? And clearly that's what's happening here. Let me read verse 20 real quick. It says, when you come together to eat, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. You're coming together and doing this, and you're calling it the Lord's Supper. This is not the Lord's Supper. You're getting it wrong. So how can we get it, how can we get it wrong? Well, verse 17 um, starts it off. Paul, Paul tells us in verse 17, But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. It's for the worse. Paul, Paul says you get some things right and that's good, but the Lord's Supper is not one of them. Communion is not one of them. Paul says that, uh, uh, in, in verse 20, do something wrong and no matter what you call it, it's not communion. So how do we get it wrong? First thing is you do it with a divisive spirit. Do it with a divisive spirit. Look at verses 18 and 19. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part. There's divisions. You're coming together to celebrate the Lord's table, to the Lord's table, and you're at odds with each other. There's all kinds of strife and greed. And the clear indication is here is you're not doing anything about it. You're not always going to get along great with everybody, right? But as much as it depends upon you, live at peace with all men, Romans tells us, right? What are you doing about it? We hear in the New Testament, in the Gospel of Matthew 2, where Jesus says, listen, before you, you come to bring your offering, you have strife with your brother, first go get that right and then come back and bring your offering. What are you doing about it? It's not that everything's always going to be rosy and perfect. It's, it's not. That's, that's part of living in a fallen world and being in a, a community with fallen people. What are we going to do about it, though? And if you're just sitting there and you're like, man, I can't stand that guy over there. He is such a jerk. I, ugh. I don't even want to look. I don't even want to look at him. Oh, thank you, Jesus. No. That's what they were doing. There's divisions. They're like, oh, I don't care. No. It's making a mockery of the body and blood of, of Christ. Don't do it with a divisive spirit. By the way, I, I, I love it. That in, chapter six, in chapter 10, if you just turn over back one page to chapter 10, Verses 16 through 17, I want to show you a little bit about what it says in the words there. It says, the cup of blessings uh, that we bless, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? By the way, the Greek word there is koinonia. And y'all may know the koinonia means fellowship. It's fellowship. That's why... The King James translates it as communion. That's where we get that word. The King James translates that word as communion. We're communing together. The whole idea is this is, and by the way, it goes on to say in verse 17 there, this is, not, this is about uh, being one people. One people. 
It's communion. We do this together, not individually. That's why we serve everybody and then we all partake of it together. There's a lot of different ways you can do it. I mean, I've even seen a church where they said, hey, the church is just going to be open one day and uh, you just go in your own time, do it by yourself as you want to, and you come there. I'm like, that really kind of misses the point here. The idea is the unity of the church around the sacrifice of Christ. And that's what we're celebrating here. So we wait for one another, as we'll see in the Scripture. But we also don't want to come as a, with a divisive spirit. If that's the case, maybe you need to pray, say, Lord, help me to forgive. Because I'm going to celebrate your forgiveness and I'm not going to forgive them. By the way, read, read Matthew chapter 18. That latter part, that parable of the two debtors. And you have one debtor who owes a, a, a massive debt. You couldn't repay it in 50 lifetimes, right? It's this massive debt. And he goes to the master and he pleads for mercy and the master forgives him. He goes out and finds somebody that owes him a small sum of money. That person says, I can't pay it. Please have mercy on me. He has him thrown in prison and has him beaten. And Jesus gives a sharp rebuke. No one's ever offended you like you've offended Christ. And he's forgiven you. We got to forgive, right? Divisive spirit, no. Number two, you do it with a pretentious heart. You can do it with a pretentious heart. Look at verse 21. <clears throat> verse 21 says, For in eating, one goes ahead with his own meal, one goes hungry, another gets drunk. Nobody's waiting for each other. Some are just pigging out. I mean, this is just the, hey, this is the love feast. I mean, this be, that's really probably the context of the love feast. Some are just pigging out. And then some are going hungry. They're sitting at the back. They don't have anything. They can't afford anything. It's wrong. Others left out. Others get drunk. There's inequality in the church in Corinth. There were distinctions between the haves and have not, the different classes of people, the important people, the maybe the not so important people in their minds. The church was really being shaped by the Roman culture a lot more than it was being shaped by the gospel. They treated different classes of people differently so that each goes ahead with his own meal, one goes hungry, another gets drunk. The best seats and the best provisions go to certain people and they eat first and they eat plenty and the poor or those of low standing eat last and have little or nothing. The very activity, the very activity that's supposed to display the unity of the church in the work of the gospel is here showing anything but that. That's why Paul says this is not the Lord's Supper. In verse 33 and verse 34, it says, first of all, wait for each other. Wait for each other. And it's to be shared. Another way you can get it wrong is to do it in a way that denies the gospel it was supposed to display. Now, that's kind of really what we already talked about, but Paul goes into more detail about it. Doing it in a way that denies the gospel it's supposed to display. Why is this such a big deal to Paul? Why is Paul just hammering the church of Corinth on this issue? Because he is. Why is he doing that? He says in verse 22, What? Do you not have houses to eat or drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? 
What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not, he says. No, you're doing it in a way that denies the gospel that it's supposed to be displaying. They're claiming to be remembering and celebrating the gospel. At the same time, they're actually denying the gospel. The gospel says, I'm nothing. I have nothing. I bring nothing to the table. I've got nothing but the mercy of God and the sacrifice of Christ. That's what I have. But classism, and which is, I don't think this is so much of a big deal for us here, but it certainly was, and it can creep into a church as well. Classism says, I'm better than you, I'm more valuable than you, and I deserve more than you. Paul says, no. Let me just, let me just make a statement here, and I, I think this is already clear to us, but it's good to say. If you're a millionaire or if you're homeless, if you're white, if you're black, if you're red, if you're green, it really doesn't matter. If you come from a good family or you come from a not-so-good family, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And no one deserves to be here. Nobody. It doesn't matter. Another way is to do it in an unworthy manner. A way to do it wrongly is to do it in an unworthy manner. We see that if you skip down to verse 27. This is a warning not to be taken lightly. Look at what it says in verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Wow. You do this in an unworthy manner, you're pronouncing guilt upon yourself. That's strong, and that's something that we, we don't just take lightly. We shouldn't just brush right over. If you're unworthy manner, guilty of the body and the blood of Christ. What does this mean? What does this mean? Well, I think it means if you're not a believer, if you're not saved, you cannot celebrate something that's not a reality for you. It, it, it has no meaning. If you're not a believer, then we encourage you just to watch and to listen. And there's a great message here that we already talked about that we want you to first understand and embrace. John Knox said, It is only for those who are in Christ and of the age to examine themselves who should partake of the Lord's Supper. We are called to examine ourselves too, so that may have some degree of the importance of the age also involved with that. But for those who are believers and can rightly examine themselves, John Knox said, and I think parents should consider this with their children. We waited for a while with ours until there was a confidence in the gospel and their walk with Christ and their ability to consider those things. So if you're unsaved, this, this isn't for you today, but please watch and learn and listen and we want you to hear and see the gospel and believe. Let me say this the other. The other is in unrepentant sin. If you come into the table this morning and you're in just open unrepentant sin, don't. At least not until you examine yourself before you judge yourself right, as the Scripture says there, to be right with the, with the Lord. Get right with God or don't eat. John Piper says you shouldn't eat the Lord's Supper if you're unwilling to renounce sin and humbly hold fast to Jesus. So if you're, if you're saying, I... Man, I'm walking in sin and I'm going to stay there. <laughs> I know it's not who I want to be ultimately. I'll get that right someday, but not right now. I'm not dealing with that. Unrepentant sin, don't eat. 
I mean, there's some incredible warnings in that passage. You heard it read earlier. We're going to read more in just a minute. If you're out of fellowship or under the discipline of this or any church, it says in, in, in 1 Corinthians, you know, do not even eat with such a one. That's what it's talking about. This doesn't mean, now let me back up now and say that, and say, this doesn't mean that you have to be perfect to take the Lord's Supper. Because none of us would ever do it. I mean, there, there's, no, there's no time. We're never going to be... We're never going to be ready. Again, I want to quote from Piper on this. He says, I don't think the phrase an unworthy manner means, means uh, we ever deserve the Lord's Supper. But there is a fitness and a suitableness between the Lord's Supper and our condition. And that fitness is not perfection on our part. Rather, it's a renunciation of sin and making war on it. A renunciation of Satan and a hearty embrace of Jesus. The language should get our attention in this passage because it says this is why many are weak and ill and some have died. That's strong language. But what are we talking about here? And that leads us to our last one. Do it with self-examination. Do it with self-examination. Verses 28 through 32. Listen to what he says. Let a person examine himself then... And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats, the, uh, eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment upon himself. That is why many are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned with the rest of the world. Examine yourself. It says examine your first self first and then eat. In other words, this isn't for everybody. If you're not, if, listen, if, if you're just walking in sin this morning, you know you're walking in sin, you're not willing to do anything about it, don't eat. Or please, better, confess that sin before the Lord and say, Lord, I'm coming by the grace of God today. Cling to Jesus. We're not talking about perfection, but we are talking about an attitude, a heart that's trusting in Jesus and releasing sin. It says in verse 29, eats and drinks judgment upon himself. In other words, God's not going to be mocked. You, you can bring about the judgment of God on yourself by making a mockery of this commemoration of Christ's death. And I already told you many. The scary thing in this passage, verse 30 is a scary verse. Many. It doesn't just say one or two. It's happened before in history. Many. In other words, it's not a small problem. Many are weak and ill. Can speak of spiritual and physical problems, and some have died. Some have even died as a result of this. Is that is that strong? Some have died. Don't trample on the grace of God. Don't take it lightly. He made you of Acts chapter five, where you have Ananias and Sapphira. Y'all remember them in Acts chapter five? They're lying to the Holy Spirit. God strikes them dead. One and then the other. Some have died. Verse 31 says, though if we judged ourselves rightly, I think that's first in reference to salvation. Do we judge ourselves? Am, am I a believer? Am I not? This is for believers, okay? Am I a believer if I've judged myself rightly? Also in reference to your relationship with sin. It, it, don't make excuses for it. Deal with it before God. Come to Christ in repentance, and then the real significance of the supper can be truly known to you. This is for believers. 
If we judged ourselves truly, then we would not be judged, it says. In other words, get honest with God about your sin. The, the Lord's Supper communion, one of the great things about doing it regularly is it causes us to regularly to be honest about our sin and our desperate need for a Savior, to, to, to put our need for repentance right in our face. We need, to, we need that. We need that. Don't make excuses for it. Deal with it before God. You can either get honest about your sin or God might get you honest about your sin. You say, that sounds really harsh. Look at verse 32. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined. By the way, that is not for unbelievers. I don't discipline other people's kids, but I absolutely discipline my own. Right? Discipline is not the same as judgment. Discipline's got an entirely different purpose. Discipline is redemptive. It's not, I'll bear the, the judgment, the weight of what I've done. It's, I love you so much that I don't want to let you keep destroying yourself. And so I'm stepping in to discipline you to bring you back. That's what we're talking about here. It says, but when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. The judgment of God comes as discipline for believers. It's ultimately for your good. It may hurt a little bit in the long term. That's why many sick and will. Some have number sleep or have died. But it's ultimately always redemptive so that we might not be condemned with the rest of the world. The point here, the point is that there should be a heart check before we celebrate communion. There should be a heart check there. Let me just say this. Let me say it real clear. Please don't say, I can't do communion today because I sinned this week. Nobody's taking communion. These guys are going to walk around with trays and nobody's getting anything. Okay? Please don't say, I can't do it because I've sinned today. That's not the point. We're not talking about perfection. We're talking about when we come to a place where we are remembering and celebrating and focusing on the finished work of Jesus, don't come to that place with the heart that says, I don't really care. Come to it and say, thank you, Jesus, for what you've done. And I need it, and I'm embracing it. I desperately need it because I've blown it so many times. I need what you've done, and I'm so thankful for it. And I'm embracing you. That's what we're talking about, an embrace of the gospel. So how do we get it right? Well, that's it. It's just really the opposite of what we read. You do it with a humble and a thankful heart. Not a selfish, pretensive heart. Pretensive? Pretentious, excuse me, thank God. Humble and thankful heart, not a selfish or pretentious heart, not a divisive spirit, but a humble gratitude for amazing grace that was displayed through the cross of Christ. By the way, another name for this is, is the Eucharist. The word Eucharist, it just means to give thanks. Some people call it the Eucharist. It's a giving of thanks. Thank you, Jesus, for what you did. I do not deserve it. But I'm clinging to it with all my heart, with all my life. Do it with the heart of repentance. Do it with a humble and thankful heart and do it with the heart of repentance. It says if you judge yourself rightly, you will not be judged. It's a heart of repentance. It's not perfection. You come with the heart of repentance that is fully trusting in the work of Christ for your forgiveness. Listen to this. Communion is for sinners. It's for sinners who are trusting completely in the grace 
of Jesus for their salvation. So this morning, we're going we're gonna to do it. I hope you remember. I hope you, I hope you know the, the why. Why do we do this? Where did it come from? It's a celebration. It's a remembrance of our deliverance, and it's a proclamation of it for what Christ has done for us. How do we do it? Well, we do things like it says in Scripture. First of all, we wait on each other. Nobody's, there's no preferential treatment here. We, none of us deserve to be here, but we're all coming and celebrating the finished work of Christ and what He did for us on that cross. And we do it with hearts and attitudes that say, thank you, Jesus. I don't deserve to be here there, but by the grace of God, go I. Thank you, Jesus. So as, as the men that are going to help serve communion, as our worship team comes up, I, I encourage you just to take a moment. Take a moment to examine yourself. It says examine yourself and then, then eat. Take a moment to examine yourself. And again, it's not do I have to pick out every little sin in my Bible in my, that I committed this week and then say, Jesus, forgive me. We're not talking about that. We're talking about saying, come and say, Jesus, I know I'm a sinner but I'm clinging to your grace and forgiveness and I'm embracing it. Help me, help me to, to put aside that sin and to live for you out of gratitude of what you've done for me. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. The scripture says.